welcome to Excuse My ADHD, a podcast for adults with or who think they may have ADHD. I'm your host, Jeanette, and this is my journey. Hello, and welcome to Excuse My ADHD. I'm your host, Jeanette Graham, and today I am here with special guest Aaron Croft. Aaron appeared to have it all when he got into Harvard, but that was the beginning of his demise. He struggled nonstop for 15 years until he was broke, divorced, earning minimum wage, and failing out of his first seven jobs and businesses. After getting a master's degree in coaching psychology and a diagnosis of inattentive ADHD, his life changed. He built a successful Fortune 500 career consulting companies like Marriott, Deloitte, Johnson & Johnson, McDonald's, KPMG, KPMG cannot talk, <laughs> and United Healthcare. Now he's on a mission to raise awareness about inattentive ADD. How it goes under the radar how to rebuild your life post-diagnosis. You can find him online at hiddenadd.com. On YouTube is Hidden ADD and TikTok as at hidden underscore ADHD. So welcome, Aaron, and thank you so much for coming today. How are you? I'm wonderful, Janet. Thank you so much for having me on. This is such a pleasure and an honor. Well, thank you. So why don't we get into it a little bit and talk about... so you were diagnosed later in life. Like I was, I was 37. Tell me a little bit about what life was like before you got into Harvard. How did you get through school and obviously excel to the point? I mean, Ivy league. So how did that all go for you? Yeah, it was, um, it was really kind of a, a tale of two cities, like a real polar opposite. Um, because, you know, I was chronically procrastinating all the time. Uh, I got through middle school and high school, never being able to finish reading a book cover to cover. And yet I was a really good test taker. And so I was getting these really good grades. And so my mom and others just said, well, Aaron just is lazy and unmotivated. And he just thinks he's better and he doesn't have to do this stuff. And meanwhile, I was kind of dying inside, but I had, I had no explanation for why I was struggling so much. Um, and so I just had to believe my mom that I was just a rotten kid. I think it's just funny because I'm sitting here and I'm nodding and I'm smiling because that's exactly how it was for me too. And I think that's how it goes for so many of us with the inattentive, you know, highly inattentive, it's, we're not the ones getting out of our seat, like the stereotypical kids, but we can't, I mean, I can remember reading chapters five and six times and just being like, screw it. I can't do this. And I was in AP classes. I don't know how, but I was in AP classes and all of my classmates were reading all of these books and taking these tests on it. And I was like, I couldn't read any of them. I couldn't get in any of them, but I was like you, I was testing well, <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's so funny that that's how it goes for so many of us. So how did you go from high school into Harvard? 
how did that transition work from you from being out of high school? So I think you said your siblings were all there and you had that support and now you're in college, which is completely, you have the structure of middle school and high school and your parents, and now you're free reign. So how did that college experience go for you? Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was like hitting a brick wall. Um, I mean, so in high school, as you said, I was, I mean, I was a naturally good test taker, but then I just had all this structure and support around me. I had the older sisters that already had built a good reputation with the teachers. And I had my parents just over my shoulder and I had smart friends who would invite me to study with them and to do homework together. And then I get to Harvard and, you know, I'm completely overwhelmed and out of my league. I lose all the structure. I lose all the social support that I had. And frankly, Jeanette, I was, I was kind of just tired um, because the, the process that I had to go through in high school to get the good grades, you know, I would, I mean, I remember studying for geometry tests. Like I couldn't, I didn't start studying until midnight the night before, like a major test. And it was just so stressful on me that when, by the time I got to Harvard and I had the freedom to not be forced to do all the crap for the first time, because I didn't have my parents over my shoulder, I was like, I just, I want out. Like, I don't want to do it. Like it's, it's so hard and painful. And so, um, so I dropped out twice before graduating. It was a very painful, miserable time in my life. And um, yeah, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. That is, it's just so funny because I'm sitting here and I'm like, your story, like obviously I didn't go to Ivy League, Harvard, but it's so parallel to mine. I went to the University of Kentucky and pretty much flunked out my first two years, I went, I think I made three courses where I actually made a C, but at some point in the middle of the term, I quit going. And at this point, you know, you're a new freshman. I didn't know anything about withdrawing. So (laughs) instead of withdrawing, I had D's, F's and a couple of C's because I couldn't handle it. I was exhausted from high school and middle school and the, you know, the new pace of college and not having that structure, it's insane because you have this end point. You think, okay, I graduated high school. I'm done. But then you get, to, you're like college. And it's just, it's a whole nother level. Your coping skills that you develop don't work anymore. And it's like, you have to get new ones. Yeah. It's, it's good to hear that it's not just me. And I mean, I'm sure it's, I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to, it's just, I mean, all the, all the lack of structure, but then on top of it, um, you know, one of my challenges, and it's funny because I put this in a TikTok video today, which was 19, 19 things that I didn't know were undiagnosed ADHD. And, uh, this one was, um, no, I just blanked on it, ADHD, but uh, well, what were we talking about? Um, <laughs> uh, get the, the, 19 things. Oh, and... yeah, the getting, the, getting t- yeah. the getting tired of school. So, yeah. you know, p- the other reason that I think, I think maybe you and I also were like exhausted was because 
what are we going to look forward to? Like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm looking at these corporate jobs that, you know, they're telling me I need to go and make this money and do, and like, I'm just like, well, that just sounds like a different version of school, but now it's like, now it's more structure and eight hours a day. This sounds terrible. And I have to sign up for the next 40 plus years. So I was just kind of like, I was checked out of the whole plan. Yeah, tried to like, retire to an island off the coast of New Zealand. One of the times I dropped out, like I was, I was just not. Well, I think part of what made, so just to, this might make you feel better or worse. I don't know. It literally took me 10 years to get my bachelor's. And part of that was not just the two years that I dropped out was I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I jumped around from majors. I was chemical engineering. I was teaching. I was psychology. I was, <laughs> I had so many courses that I didn't need by the time I ended up with business. And I only did business because I knew with business, I could get a job just about right. it was a non, it was a non-commitment yeah. to it's just exactly. going to give me more options so I can push the decision further right. into the future. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what it was. And I ended up with so many credit hours that I couldn't use for my degree. <laughs> you know, and this is this is such a challenging thing because because of our ADHD interest-based nervous systems, like like if we if we like it, it's it it's in, it seems indulgent from the outside to go through all those machinations and try to find that thing that we really can connect to and that we love and are good at, but like like what people don't realize from the inside is that like our brains won't focus on something unless we can satisfy that, that interest and desire component. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing that a lot of neurotypicals get aggravated at us with because we can get so hyper intensely focused on something and completely ignore the rest of the world. But the caveat is we have to have an interest in it. We have to follow that dopamine there. And if that dopamine has taken us somewhere, you may as well forget it. You're not doing anything. You, you don't even exist to us right now. But with college, you can't do that unless you have something you really love. And that's what you're going at. But if you lose interest in it or you realize it's not for you, it makes it extremely difficult to stay that course. Extremely difficult. And I learned that the hard way. And I don't think you always know that until you try it. Amen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So after Harvard, try and pull us back out of the rabbit hole a little bit. Um, you said you had a bunch of minimum wage jobs. So what happened after you graduated? Yeah. So it wasn't a bunch of minimum wage jobs. It was ending up earning minimum wage. It was a, um, it was like just a ping pong ball. Just, uh, you know, my first job lasted six months and then my next job was a year, which was like a big deal that I made it a year. And then I tried to start a business and then I tried to start a different business and I tried to start another business. And then I tried to get a sales job and it was just bounce to bounce to bounce to bounce to bounce. And um, so it was just trying different jobs, trying different careers, all undiagnosed, um, you know, trouble with authority figures, mm -hmm. 
not, not really still having a system to follow through on anything unless, which was the only system that worked in high school, waiting, procrastinating until I had the fear of God in me and then using that stress to be able to get it done, you know, at the last minute. Uh, but you know, that there were a number of reasons why that didn't work as well in the working world. <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, my, my now ex-wife at the time didn't like me staying late and working weekends when she knew that I was procrastinating other times. And she's like, you know, neurotypical, like just do your damn work, like during working hours, like the rest of us do. Uh, and so, and so a whole number of reasons, but at the end of that whole string, then I got a seventh job, um, that I lasted at for nine months and I was earning minimum wage, uh, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of just like falling down a really tall flight of stairs for 15 years from getting into Harvard. <laughs> so what was the catalyst? How did you end up getting diagnosed? Was it, you know, you just suspected something or was it someone in your family? Yeah. Um, it's kind of a bad story. So I just want to caveat it with that. Okay. Um, so you don't have to tell, you can just summarize, oh, so-and-so just, you don't have to go into it if you don't want to. I don't want you to be uncomfortable. No, 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 it's not that. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's just a story. It's a story that shouldn't, that, that, that you shouldn't try at home. Um, so I got diagnosed the wrong way, uh, but I also had no clue. If you had asked me the day before I found out about ADHD, what's the odds that you have ADHD, I would have put it at 0%. Like I just had zero knowledge. Um, I'm just lazy and unmotivated. Uh, mm -hmm. And so basically what happened is, so I'm in that minimum wage job and then my life continues to fall apart. And then I end up broke and divorced as well. Um, and so adding to the, the, the statistics that, ADHD years have doubled the divorce rate of uh, the normal population. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there earning minimum wage and I move in to a shared house with four other people and I couldn't even afford my own room. So I was sharing a room and actually one half of a king size bed with a 26 year old tech support analyst from Vietnam named Billy. <laughs> and I, I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, like, like I can't, I need to like get my stuff together and I need to. So, you know, again, fear of God in me, I was able to just hustle and kind of make some mm -hmm. things work. And I pulled together some different contract jobs and I was able to sort of cobble together a coherent narrative on my resume, but behind the scenes, it was really just held together with toothpicks and stuff. Um, and then, so now divorced, I moved, I was in Australia. I moved back to the States and, you know, if I'm going to rebuild a life and meet someone new in my career, I want to at least do it, you know, where I'm from and with family around. So I moved to Chicago after a few months, I end up getting a great job. Um, and so one of the things about me, Jeanette, is that I can interview for jobs really well. Yeah. It's the, it's the delivering on what I promised in the interview that always screwed me up. Uh, so anyway, so I get this great job 
And, you know, the first few months of the job, all honeymoon phase, it's all just, you know, training and and learning new things. It's new. You're meeting new people and blah, blah. blah. And, uh, well, then all of a sudden three months in, I get a call and, uh, it's my performance manager. And he's like, I'm hearing that your work's not up to snuff. I'm like, what do you mean? Anyway, everyone had just been all Aaron's great. Aaron's great. Aaron's great. A few things happened. And all of a sudden it was Aaron's not great. The reason that I don't have a problem with it is because it was actually accurate. Like my work wasn't very good. Um, but basically they put me on my, my boss put me on notice that I had basically a week to redo all the work that I'd done in the past two months and get it up to this like new standard. And she's like, I need you to stay late every night this week. And you know, you're not going to charge any extra hours to the client because I was consulting, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. you need to redo this. And I flipped out. I was already, I was already at the edge. I mean, I was working nine, 10 hour days. I, I mean, I had nothing left in the tank Yeah. and she wants me to not just keep doing what I'm doing, but redo a bunch of old work and stay late. And, and I'm three months in, I'm still under probation. And so I called a buddy and I'm just freaking out. I'm like, I'm going to get fired. And I can't, I don't know that I could sell myself into another good job. Like it was already pretty tenuous. Um, and, uh, so I called a friend I was like, dude, I heard you mentioned Adderall, um, that you, that you take it with ADHD. Like, like I, I would never ask this before. I've never taken it in my life. I don't even know what it is, but all I know is I can't get fired and I need to stay late every night this week. Like, like, can you help me not get fired? And, um, I had to call a few friends, but one of them's like, yeah, that like, whatever. And, um, so it was just literally like, I thought it was just like, save my butt for this week. Um, and I was just, I was just terrified and, um, backed into a corner anyway, fast forward. So to Monday of that week, I get there and like in the, in the afternoon or kind of midday, I'm like, all right, I got to get ready for this like late night push and blah, blah, blah. I, I take the Adderall and then I just kind of walk around for half an hour. And then I come back to this conference room in this basement. Um, and this was at Johnson Johnson and one of their subsidiaries. And uh, we're in this basement, like dingy conference room. Come back there and there's a few other consultants sitting around the table. You know, these are like kind of distracting environments. Mm. And I sit down and I'm looking, I'm, look, I'm at my computer and I'm working on some like boring PowerPoint presentation, with like some Excel thing as well. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, like, wait, I'm like focused on this when all this other stuff's going on around me and it's not interesting. And then five minutes later, I was like, ah, I can, I can stay focused on this. And it was I like it was like literally like I stepped into Alice in Wonderland, like a new dimension. And I said, oh, my God, is this what all the people my entire life have been saying when they're just like, Aaron, just do the thing like that people could actually sit down and focus on something what they want to focus on, like mind blown, Jeanette. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's how it was when. I was on, I started with Stratera cause I was seeing someone online and he couldn't 
prescribe the controlled substances. So it took about three or four weeks, but once it started working, it was, it was a whole new world. It's like, you've gone through the looking glass and it's like, this is what it's like to be normal. This is what people do all the time. Yeah. So like, so my, so, so that was how I, I backed into the diagnosis. I was like, oh my God, like my friend that has ADHD that, that did this, which no one should do and don't do this at home, but yeah, don't do um, this at home kids. Yeah. Uh, but it was like, well, if like it was, yeah, it was a whole, it was through the looking glass. And I was like, then I started researching about ADHD and, um, you know, and then I was like, Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yes. It's um, not what you think it is. Well, because most of us just think that it's like a six-year-old boy bouncing off the walls. In Cause that's what we grade. were always told. Right. That's all anybody ever said about it. Yeah. It's just kids that can't sit still kids that don't listen. Exactly. It's like, it's the rambunctious. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the five-year-old or the four-year-old that's still acting like a toddler. And I'm like, well, that wasn't me. I was like, shy and quiet and reserved and like too anxious to go do any of that crap. Well, it's because you're hyper, but you were hyper in your mind. It wasn't your body. You weren't, your mind was racing. Oh yeah. It's, but you know, I think that's how you're obviously, you're not the first person to find out that way. I mean, people do that all the time. It's why they have such it's why we have to when we get those controlled substances, we have to go in every month, pee in a cup, sign our life away that we're only going to see one doctor, go to one pharmacist, and pick that prescription up every month. It's your fault, Aaron. I know, I know. <laughs> to all your listeners, but... <laughs> if you'd like to send me hate mail, you can go you can go to the website, You're not the first comment, one. The contact form. But the thing was, though, you were coping and through coping, you helped to solve your problem. And the fact is, you may still have not known if you wouldn't have done that. And where would you be? I'd be, I'd be living with, I'd be, I'd be like 30, be living with Billy 36 and yeah, living with (laughs) Billy or it was, it was hilarious because I moved to Chicago um, like, you know, how bad would it be to be like a 34 year old man living with his mother? Right. And like, especially single trying to go out and meet people. And, you know, I was basically doing that. I just had the fact that it was living with my mother's sister. So my aunt. So it like, it like didn't sound quite as bad, but like it, it was, it was as bad. And I would have just been like back there. And I, I mean, I don't know, back to yeah, Billy or minimum wage or something. <laughs> okay. So after you got the official diagnosis, like, how did that make you feel? What was your thought process? And then how did that diagnosis get you to where you're at now? Yeah. Um, so I mean, I went and once I understood it, I immediately booked a psychiatrist appointment and psychiatrist is like, how did you survive until now? Um, Like I'm hearing all the symptoms and, but so I had to share all like the workarounds I've used and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, you know, it was, it was such a relief 
um, because I was like, holy crap, I'm not lazy and unmotivated. Like, and I actually, I also discovered that I was way more capable than I realized. I mean, that was how I got promoted four times in six years. Like people were commenting on like my work being good. And, you know, I stayed, I stayed at a job for over three years, like almost four years. And like, that was a record for me. I mean, wow. Um, and yeah, so it was amazing. But I mean, as anyone who's been a diagnosed as an adult knows, or then you kind of, as you see that, then you also have the parallel, like, what if, and gosh, what if I'd known this when I was 20 and what could I have done? And you know, all the, yeah. all the pain and trauma. So it, it's a mixed bag of emotions, but I mean, it's an inflection point in my life where the direction changed noticeably and I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it back for the world. I kind of feel like when you find out later in life, like after high school and college and you're in your adulthood, I almost feel like there's this grief process that you go through because you're accepting you're in denial. I was in denial. It took three psychiatrists and my husband to convince me that I had ADHD. It was big time denial. And you know, the grief, you get stuck in that what ifs for a little while and like, why? And then you get mad. And I was always mad because like, why didn't anybody know? Why didn't my teachers know? Why didn't my doctors know? Why didn't my parents know? Why didn't anybody help me? And I think it took me a little while to get out of that. And to the point where I was like, okay, this isn't going to change. This isn't doing me any good. And now I have to get my ass in gear and figure out how I'm going to move forward. And that's when things start to change. So for you, you got your diagnosis and things obviously changed significantly. How did you get to where you are now when your coaching business and helping building this fortune 500 career? How did you go from your diagnosis to that? Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, it was, it was a good story, but you mentioned earlier, kind of that, that hyper-focus and, and if we're interested in something, we can dive into it. And, um, when I was 18, I read my first book cover to cover and someone had given me a book on how to stop procrastinating. <laughs> and I was like, holy crap, like, like there's answers to this internal battle that I'm just struggling with. And so that, that for me kicked off, you know, a 20 year, just obsession with personal development, personal growth, productivity, uh, books and that sort of thing. So the, the great part about the diagnosis and getting medication treatment for me was that all of a sudden now I was freed up to apply a lot of these things that I'd learned, but I only had as head knowledge not as applied knowledge. It was like, oh, I can start using these strategies. Uh, and so that was what, that was what really kind of took me through the first part of my career rebuild when I was consulting with the big companies and all that. Uh, and then, and then I kind of plateaued there. And then I hit a second point, which was I discovered that productivity strategies and all that are 
not made for ADHDers. <laughs> no. <laughs> No. And, I, and I, you know, and I have studied them and I, and I, I've tried all the systems and I even use pieces of getting things done or, you know, all these different things. But, uh, then I started making the connection, um, through, you know, hearing some of Dr. Russell Barkley's talks and others that yeah, I love him. the neuroanatomy and understanding how our ADHD brains work then dictates that we should have different strategies for how we're tackling productivity and other things. And for me, that was, that was really the missing piece that really connected everything for me. Um, and once I had that, that was like the, the third part of the trifecta, then my productivity shot through the roof and I was able to build the coaching and social media on the side while I was working full-time as a fortune 500 senior manager and, um, yeah, it was really, that was, that was the inflection point. You talked about, we talked about the coaching and the social media. What was your why? Everybody has a why I have a why for why I'm podcasting. What's your why for the coaching and your social media? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's obviously big, especially with us ADHDers. We need, we need there to be that why, mm -hmm. um, and for me, for me, it's that I want to abolish the sentence. I want to do something, but I can't get myself to do it. How can we not get ourselves to do something? But that was how, that was how I, that was what I had experienced my whole life. And it causes such internal distress to want to do something and be unable to get yourself to do the thing that you want to do. And I just said that I need to learn everything I can about this, figure it out for myself and help other people figure it out as well. Because I know how much internal friction having your foot on the gas and on the brake causes. Yeah. As you flood the car and you can't go anywhere. The engine's flooded, you're done. But that's, I mean, yeah, because so many of us struggle with that. I mean, the other day, I was so overwhelmed with this project that I've been working on for a presentation tomorrow. I just sat there and literally stared at the computer for like 30 minutes and did nothing because I couldn't make myself do it. I'm screaming in my head to do it. Just do the damn thing. Just finish the report. You're almost done. Just do it. And I couldn't make myself do it. I was, I was done at that point. I had no motivation left. So it's just so important. It really, it really is. And I think, you know, it was for me, it was like, how do we put that puzzle together? Right? Like, it's great to study all the productivity approaches. And it's great to layer in the science of motivation and goals and change from my master's in coaching psychology. But how do you then layer in the ADHD lens? How do you make this work for us? And I really, you know, I decided, I knew that I wanted to do this coaching and social media, but it was, it was a bumpy road, you know, even to, to do it. Cause I'm working full time and, you know, there were periods where it was like, I would start working on it and then I would go a month and not make any progress. And I know that, I know that well. 
Well, and it was, you know, and it was, it was kind of like, I just turned 40 a few months ago and it was like, well, Aaron, at a certain point, like, you know, this was a year ago. So I was 39. Like, you know, if you're not going to follow through, like you, you might just need to give up on this like dream. You can't just keep teasing yourself that you want to do this. Um, and so I just, I doubled down on my efforts to figure out how do I solve this productivity challenge for myself? and for clients. And that's sort of, that was where I finally put together my smash productivity program. I started implementing and executing it. And, you know, that was where I got the 20 plus articles published, 50 YouTube videos filmed, 75 books read, working out five days a week, taking on more responsibility at work while, you know, doing this full-time job. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was finally figuring out kind of the secrets around productivity that would allow me to fit all those things in. And that was really what grew, um, you know, the coaching and social media to 70,000 followers and that sort of thing. Your why you were living your why. Okay. So we talked, you got into a little bit about your productivity stuff. So on your website, you have the 10 productivity mistake, 88, oh, I cannot talk. 10 productivity mistakes, 80 deers make with productivity. So should we play the put a finger down game? Because I'm thinking <laughs> I could probably have all of them, but what are the 10 mistakes that you help people break the habits of? What are yeah. we doing wrong? I mean, so we could, we could play, why don't, why don't we <laughs> do the finger down and then I'll zoom in on three of them. Okay. Okay. All right. I got so, my fingers ready. Nobody finger can down, see it, but I got Put a finger it. down. Uh, stake number one, you believe you're lazy, unmotivated, and flawed. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you, you, we all do, even though we say change, we're not. Yeah, exactly. You try to change. Number two, you try to change by beating yourself up. Mm, yeah. Number three, you try to do too many goals at once. I mean, what's too many? If you're, if you're asking, you're doing too many. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, number four, and this is kind of related to number three, um, we don't have a keystone goal. Okay. So what are you calling a keystone goal? A keystone goal. So um, is an overarching container goal that, that subsumes smaller goals. And so one of the things that I see with myself and with a lot of clients is that they might have a goal around say, you know, be better at public speaking or improve my time management, but it's much better when you can figure out a bigger goal that then has those sub goals included in it. So it could be to get promoted or to start a side hustle. There's been so many of my own sub goals that I've needed to do in service of this bigger goal around my social media and building the coaching business. And that gives much more motivation than I just need to be disciplined and follow my public speaking training plan every week. So yeah. learning skills for the sake of skills, whereas if we can embed them under a keystone goal, it really, it simplifies. It allows us to have one goal or two goals while at the same time, still allowing for there to be, you know, multiple. Well, I think that's important because I think part of the problem we have is we have a goal, but we have no idea how to get there. And we have no idea 
all of the steps that it takes. So if we don't reach that goal, we get so frustrated when we fail. But if we would just have someone help us take the time to break it down, then we can celebrate those small wins and then we can get there in the long run. Yeah. I mean, amen. Um, which, you know, kind of, if we, if we skip ahead to mistake number eight, which I think right now we've got four fingers down on number four, but is that we try to succeed alone, um, is mistake number eight. And once I discovered coaching, um, it really is like, I feel like our ADHD brains are a bit like the, are a bit like the nuclear codes or nuclear weapons. Like they have so much tremendous power and potential, but you can't have just one person unlock the codes. Like you need multiple people there to release the power. And once I, once I stopped fighting it, because I tried to literally be my own coach, therapist and champion, I tried to do everything. I would sit at home. I mean, this is throughout my twenties and even into my thirties. And I would, you know, hypnosis tapes and NLP, neuro-linguistic programming and, and, you know, journal out the wazoo and so many vision boards and so many things. And I was trying to do everything myself. And once I discovered that when I had another person I could work with as a coach, that it unlocked my potential in ways that it was, it was such a game changer for me. I think that, I think we, a lot of us get stuck with that. And I think part of it is we're so used to doing things on our own (laughs) because we're afraid to ask for help. Because I think a lot of times we're afraid that other people, at least for me, a lot of times I don't ask for help because I'm afraid that somebody's either not going to do things the way I want them done. They're going to think that I'm crazy and I'm going to, I'm stuck masking all the time because we mask so much because we have to cut, you know, we want to fit in. And then just the feeling of being lazy. So we want to prove everyone wrong. So we try to do all the things ourselves, and then we fall our face. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectly said. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we got the first four and we got number eight. Yeah. There you go. What way to stay on track with that. All right. So then, um, so back to number five or not back to coming to number five, um, we try to work harder rather than smarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then number six is that we believe the straight line productivity myth and yeah. the straight line productivity myth is that we play the efficiency game. We think that we should be on for eight hours a day and we try to make every hour efficient. Whereas in reality, our chronobiology has ebbs and flows throughout the day. And one of the things that I found to be so impactful for my ADHD and that I work with clients on is identifying your chronobiology. And then we match tasks to your biological rhythm um, so that you're doing certain tasks when you have the most resources available to do that. That's really smart. There's that harbor brain at work. Yeah. Right. It's, okay. it's, it's such a game changer because my, my whole thing is, you know, I'm really, I, I, despite everything, I still don't have, 
a lot of staying power in a day. My focus still, I, I can't work 10, 12, 14 hour days. And I certainly couldn't do them back to back for any length of time. And so, so much of my stuff is like, how am I going to get what I can get out of me knowing that I can't, I don't really feel like I could push the gas pedal much more without burning myself out. And yeah. yet like my level of work isn't massive. So like, how do I make the most of this limited amount of fuel I get every day? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Cause I mean, that's true. We don't have, we don't start with a full tank <laughs> and then we're racing. We're trying to round around on fumes the rest of the day. It's hard. I mean, even, you know, doing the other things, because, you know, the medication doesn't solve all of our problems. We're still having to try and eat right and exercise and all of these things, which aren't always able to do. So our staying power is never at the same level, unless you're a robot and you have exactly the same schedule every day. I don't right. have that. <laughs> yeah. And I think most of us don't. Most of us don't. So the straight line productivity myth is always a big eye opener for, for people when I share it with them. Um, cause most of us have been sold this kind of nine to five, eight hour thing that really started much more in the, in the factories and it doesn't work for knowledge work. Our brains right. can't manual labor fine, but not knowledge labor. Yeah. That's so much. All right. Um, I think we have three left. So number okay. seven was, um, you try to use motivation and willpower to change. Yeah. I have that impulsive thing. So the willpower doesn't always work because I'm combination type. So I pretty much have everything, but the outward hyperactivity, that impulsiveness runs strong. That's why yeah. on lunch today, even though I wasn't supposed to, I went and got, you know, the big s'mores, insomnia cookie. So that's 540 calories. But I okay. say, because I walk down there and it's hot outside, I feel like I burn twice that much, even though it was only a five minute, probably walk. three <laughs> times as much. I feel like you're underselling. And, but, yeah. but, but it does, it comes into kind of a little bit about that whole, like suffering by ourselves, trying to do everything alone mm -hmm. is like, we're just like our motivation and willpower is deficient. That's what we've been told. And we're just like, we need to somehow zero it in, but yeah. it's just, I mean, we don't, we don't have enough of it to make it effective. And so, um, like BJ Fogg, the New York times bestselling author of tiny habits, uh, mm -hmm. he has a quote that design trumps willpower. Like if you design your environment and there's lots of external things, yeah. we're just, we're much more influenced by our environment. So that's number seven, number eight, we try to succeed alone. We already covered number nine. We try to be good at everything, which also kind of comes back into trying to do everything on our own. Um, and, uh, and then number 10 is we don't use accountability to achieve our goals. Yeah. Mistake number 10. And that one, that one's huge. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Jeanette. Oh, no, I was just going to say the same thing is that it is huge. That's why so many people I know have started using accountability partners or they'll go and open a Google chat room just to work in the same vicinity as someone else. I mean, even me, if I had a big project in my previous job, one of my accountants and I would sit in my office and we would work on it together and we got it done so much faster than if either one of us tried to do it by ourselves. 
Exactly. And I think, I think the, the, the thing for me that why this was such an eye opener was because we all grow up to hate accountability as ADHDers. And the reason is the reason that we grow up to hate it is because there are goals that we didn't choose and behaviors that are being forced on us that we're being held to account to. And we resent it, which is yeah. part of the trouble with authority figures. So we then throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I did this for most of my 40 years. However, accountability is magic. If you get to pick the goal, if yeah. it's your goal that you really want somebody helping you and pushing you to actually achieve the thing that you know you can achieve and you performing higher than your level. And the, like, it's the most freeing thing in the world. As you said, accountability partners, um, you know, coaches, it doesn't matter who it is, even body doubling, just the, the act of having accountability uh, is, is a game changer. And yet most of us have written off accountability because of the pain from childhood. And so that's mistake number 10 is heal, heal, heal your relationship with accountability when you apply it to goals that you choose rather than your parents choose. It doesn't suck anymore. This, yeah, <laughs> that's very true. And I think people find that out as they try it. So you have this on your website for free and a bunch of other amazing tools that people can go to your website and find out that's hidden H I D D E N A D D.com. I will have all of Aaron's links on the website. So our time is coming to an end. And I want to be mindful of it. If you could say just one thing to someone with ADHD, that someone that was just newly diagnosed, give one piece of advice. What would you say? I would say that ADHD specific strategies that are tailored to an ADHD brain are a game changer. Just understand that most productivity strategies and approaches aren't designed with ADHDers in mind and seek out ADHD specific strategies and support to go along with any medication or other treatment that you're getting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And it's just so funny because the timing was hilarious because I told Aaron before when he emailed me, I didn't, I didn't know his name. So I went and I looked him up and I realized that I follow him on TikTok. <laughs> so you'll have to go and watch his TikTok. And like I said, I'll have all of his information on the show notes. Um, so if there's nothing else, just want to say thank you again. And until next time. Thank you for listening to Excuse My ADHD. If you like what you hear, don't forget to please subscribe, rate, and leave an awesome review. Show notes and social media links are available at www.excusemyadhd.com. Until next time.